Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. Before we get to the show, I want to tell you about a podcast that you're going to love. Most Americans know firmly where they stand on reproductive rights. But how did we get here? How did abortion become one of the most contentious political debates in the United States? That's where Ordinary Equality comes in. From Wonder Media Network, Ordinary Equality co-hosts Jamia Wilson and Kate Kelly are unpacking the history of abortion from the views of the Founding Fathers to Roe v. Wade all the way to present day. They're seeking to understand why everything related to women's rights does indeed seem to come back to abortion, and how abortion access is tied to our fundamental rights and freedoms even more than you think. So listen and subscribe to Ordinary Equality wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jason Kander, and this is Majority 54, the podcast that helps Americans who voted for progress convince those who didn't to join our majority. Ravi, what's happening? Well, the biggest news of the week is that Biden is negotiating with Congress over a massive COVID relief package. And on Monday night, he met with a, a group of 10 members of the GOP who offered a counterproposal uh, which was about a third of the size of Biden's bill. So the GOP bill was about $618 billion uh, versus a $1.8 trillion bill that Biden proposed. And the difference between these bills is that the GOP bill leaves out any relief for state and local governments, shrinks stimulus checks and, and unemployment benefits. And Biden, uh, it seems like he had a really cordial meeting with these senators, but uh, has made it very clear through his administration that he's not really budging. Um, Jen Psaki, the White House press secretary, said that the risk is is not that it's too big. The risk is that it's too small, and that remains Biden's view. Schumer made similar statements on Sunday where he kind of looked back to the ACA, where Democrats wasted a lot of time trying to get bipartisan support before it became really clear that no matter what they gave up in negotiations, they weren't going to get a single Republican vote. But it still watered down a bill that eventually got passed on a party line vote. So the big question to you, Jason, is it seems like Biden's going to go ahead with a bigger package. It might not be 1.8. It might be a little bit smaller. But the GOP is inevitably going to say that Biden wasn't serious about his inauguration message of unity. I'm sure our listeners are going to be getting a lot of these arguments. How should they handle it? So there is a difference between compromising as a form of unity and inviting people to be a part of doing the right thing as a form of unity. And that's what Joe Biden is doing here. He's saying, this is the right thing to do. We're going to do it. You're welcome to join us in that. They are trying to frame unity as taking some of the Republican ideas, even if you disagree with them, and treating them as an equal partner in this process. Well, he is treating them as an equal partner, but they're wrong about stuff. And he won the election. We control the entire government, which means not only that we have a mandate 
to do this. But furthermore, unlike the Republicans right now, we have responsibility. Like at the end of the day, what's happening here is the Republicans can vote no, they can say it should be a smaller package. And really, no one will end up being able to hold that against them politically, because this is going to happen. And it's going to, you know, help a lot of people. And most people are not going to remember how folks voted on this. Yeah, bipartisanship, unity, these are all uh, a means to an end, especially the bipartisanship part of this. You know, Biden's first obligation is to avoid suffering and get America back on its feet. We lost 20 million jobs throughout this pandemic and have only replaced about half of them. And we're still in the middle of a massive, massive healthcare crisis that it's not immediately clear when we're going to get out of it. Uh, a, a friend of mine, um, Brock Wilbur, had a, a tweet this week that was, you know, I don't know why the Biden administration doesn't just compromise and send bipartisans to everyone's house. He's, <laughs> like, he's like, that's what we need. We just need everybody to be sent bipartisans every month and everything will be fine. Which gets to your point. The, the end goal here is not bipartisanship. That is a possible way to reach the end goal. But the end goal is get the economy back going, keep people from starving and keep people from dying of COVID. Like that's the end goal. And I actually think the way to go here is to engage people on the two plans. And it, it like, don't go into this frame of like, is he being, uh, is, is he trying to achieve unity or is he not just be like, this is what Biden wants to do. And the, uh, Republicans are saying like, if you make more than 40,000, I think it is a year, like they don't want you to get one of the checks and they want the checks to be less. And Biden is saying, look, our economy is going to do a lot better if if we go ahead and send stimulus checks to people making up to, I think, households up making up to like 300,000. It's it's urgent. It, she Jen is exactly right when she says the risk is doing not enough. Right. And you know who's been great on this? I mentioned him, I think, a pot or two ago is John Tester, who is just coming from a really tough state, but has been consistent in saying, we got to do this. We got to go big. And this gets to the point of what it means to, to be a unifier. Joe Biden's obligation is not to GOP senators, although he, in my opinion, has an obligation to be cordial to people he works with. And he's doing that. Like his first meeting in the Oval Office was with GOP senators. It wasn't with civil rights activists. It wasn't with uh, a group of just his own members of his party. It was with a group of members of the other party. And I think that was symbolically important. But the unity here is about the unity of the country. And the best way to unify this country is to heal it in every possible way, whether it's to cure this virus, get our economy going again. And it's not just Democratic governors and Democratic mayors who are calling for a massive stimulus. They're Republican governors um, who are saying this needs to be massive because even the most budget conscious, fiscally hawkish people out there are facing massive red in their budgets around the country. And states have very limited means to raise revenue. They're not like the federal government could that just print money, you know, and uh, they need federal relief. And I think it's also important to remember that a lot of the same people, and I do think that some of this 10 group of GOP members are acting in good faith. Absolutely. And it's not, it's not our job to demonize them at all. But many of the people in this group supported a one point $9 trillion, I think, tax cut that was passed in the same budget procedure of reconciliation. Uh, a lot of them also voted for the rollback of the ACA, which barely lost only because of John McCain's uh, last minute vote. This idea that reconciliation is now illegitimate, that doesn't seem on the level. What we've been doing this at least since the Bush tax cuts, right? So like if it's good enough for 
tax cuts during a war that just started, tax cuts that go mostly to rich people, then I think it's good enough to go ahead and stimulate the economy during a pandemic that has crippled the country. It actually reminds me a lot of, you know, the the Recovery Act, right? When, you know, President Obama came into office, it was right after he came into office, and there was a huge economic collapse. And he was like, this is what we want to do. We want to do a trillion dollars. And they were like, no, 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 the Republicans refused to do it. He had the majority, he had an even bigger majority than here. And he, he went along and he, he made some compromises and he brought it down under that number. And then what happened? The economy didn't come back as fast as it would have if they had gone with their initial plan. And the Republicans literally ran against him four years later saying that this recovery is too slow. So I mean, that's what they're going to do here, right? Like, I'm not saying that the 10 senators who went to the Oval Office are going to do that. But in general, that's what the Republicans are planning to do is oppose this, try and get him to bring it down, because that may be ideologically what they believe in. And then when we don't recover from this, from a health perspective or from an economic perspective, as quickly as we could have, if we had actually leaned into it, well, then they get to blame Biden and the Democrats for that, because we're the ones with responsibility because we're in charge of everything. So you know what? That was one Democratic presidency ago, and Biden was the vice president. We've learned our lesson, and we ain't falling for that again. Yeah. And you know, the one downside to going it alone here for Biden is that if we don't get rid of the filibuster, which it looks like we're not going to do uh, over the next two years, you get one shot per year, I think, or budget cycle to use reconciliation. So this is it. That means that there are certain things that progressives want. A big example is the minimum wage increase. That could really only happen through reconciliation. And Manchin has already signaled that he will not support a package with that in it. So it looks like at least for this year, if they go ahead with this package, which I think is the right thing to do, uh, a robust package, there are certain things that we're not going to get in that bill that we will not be able to pass absent some kind of reform of the filibuster. It just goes back to we absolutely have to reform the filibuster and everybody's got to be cool with the idea that Joe Manchin's going to get some great stuff for West Virginia. Like that's how the system works. Like, I, you know, I, they're going to have, I don't know what the hyperloop is, but I think they're going to have one there. Like, <laughs> whatever, you know, like, I mean, we can move Cape Canaveral and Houston and all of NASA to, to Wheeling. It, whatever it is, like this has to happen. There's a progressive pack that is recruiting challengers to Manchin and cinema because of their opposition to the filibuster. And this is a, seems like a rather serious effort. What do we think about this? Is this good strategy? Is it too early? Just the right time? Uh, bad idea? Good idea? You know, I never know how to evaluate things as far as whether they're good strategy or bad strategy when they come from a particular element of the party that has a certain goal in mind, right? Because when you're evaluating whether something is a good strategy, you assume that you have the exact same end goals as the other folks. And we may not, right? They may not feel uh, that the potentially losing the Senate majority is as dire of a possibility as us because they may feel that the things that can be accomplished without a filibuster are so minimal that it doesn't matter, right? So it's hard to say from a strategic perspective. But I also think this is natural. Like I said, I think last week that if you're an elected Democrat in 2021, and you don't see the need to reform the filibuster, then you are functionally opposed to the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. That is completely uh, incongruent with being an elected Democrat in 2021. So I just think this is a natural thing. Doesn't mean that it is natural that they should have a primary opponent, but is it natural that there would be pressure from the left? Yeah, that's that seems natural to me. I'll start by saying, 
everybody's entitled to primary anybody. And I think like, we don't need to demonize anybody for doing it. I just would say that if I were a West Virginia voter in the primary, I would not be supporting a primary of Manchin, even assuming he ran. And here's why. Trump won West Virginia by 41%. 41%. He didn't get 41%. He won by 41%. That's among the biggest margins like ever. And actually in the previous election, 2016, Trump won the largest uh, share of the vote that any candidate in history has won in West Virginia. So number one, there's a lot of talk that Manchin is not even going to run again. So this this may be totally irrelevant uh, on the Manchin side of things. And if we did... I would be very respectful of people trying to push him to be more progressive. But the goal here is to get the person most ideologically aligned to you that can win in a state. And I think that's probably what we have in Joe Manchin. It's a miracle that he's even there uh, as a Democrat, given the numbers and how they've shifted in that state. So on the Manchin side of things, I would be really careful there. I ultimately don't think he runs again, so I'm not sure how relevant it is. And if he does, it's the most ultimate uphill battle. I think Cinema is a little different because her state is a lot closer. And I think the dynamics there, you know, she's going to want to run again. And I do think pressure would make a difference on her. Yeah, there's definitely an argument for putting that pressure on from the left in Arizona. Um, Senator Cinema is somebody who I, I do think ultimately will come around on this. And I think there's a really good argument for saying, hey, there are states where if we all work together, i.e. like we did in Georgia, where you can get an additional Democratic senator and they could be very progressive. So that there could be some coming together there. The stakes couldn't be higher to get rid of this filibuster. And I think we cannot give up on it, like, even though I think this particular tactic is not necessarily going to work. I think we have to continue making the moral case for ending the filibuster. And one reason why is that since the Joe Biden election I read this morning, there have been 106 bills introduced around the country in state legislatures to weaken voter protection, voting rights. And so we have got to pass legislation to shore up the vote uh, and improve our democracy here. We also have an effort by the right wing to press their advantage in state legislatures to game the redistricting process to, to you know lock in another 10 years of dominance in the House of Representatives, this is a moral point. It's not just about winning elections because you're Democrats. It's like they're taking away the franchise. There's right and wrong. I mean, it, there's right and wrong, and it's real plain here. So, yeah, so I, I don't have any issue with anybody who's who's getting engaged in this fight. I think you got to try everything because this, in many ways, is the ball game for many years. Right. Well, let's quickly talk about impeachment. The process is rolling along. I think Americans now have just gotten used to this. You know, we're becoming adept at the rules and procedures around impeachment where we're about to begin a trial, the outcome of which is all but certain to be acquittal, but with a majority of the U.S. Senate voting to convict, but not the two-thirds that's required to not remove, I guess, because he's already out of office, but to 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 just go ahead with the conviction, which has all sorts of consequences, one of which is that he Trump couldn't run again, but more importantly, that the history books would note that there was a consequence for his behavior on his way out of office. How much does any of this matter now that we know what the outcome is going to be of this trial? Look, I think it matters from a historical perspective. It, you can't incite violent insurrection upon your government and then just retire to Florida like that's a normal thing to do. And so whether or not he is convicted or not, 
doesn't really have any bearing on whether you attempt to do it. I, I remember Elizabeth Warren saying during the last impeachment that it is important that every member of the Senate cast a vote on whether or not they think it's okay what he did. And I think everybody should cast a vote on whether or not they think it's okay. Right. And here's the point when you're talking to your relatives who are like, why are we doing this when he's on when he's already gone? Consider this hypothetical. Consider a president of the United States who commits any crime, major crime, whatever, on their last day in office. You still need a consequence for that. Impeachment exists to, to ensure that there's a consequence for egregious behavior, unlawful behavior, um, behavior that's dangerous uh, and unconstitutional. And the reason why these legal scholars, there are not many legal scholars who think what the, what the Democrats are advocating for here is unconstitutional is because of that point. Like, there has to be a consequence for a president until their very last second in office. Well, because otherwise, you consider the only consequence to be elections, right? Well, if we're going to have our election on the first Tuesday after the first Monday in November, and then we're going to exchange, or we're going to you know, have the uh, peaceful transfer of power on January 20th, well, it's not a consequence-free zone in between. They don't get to like get senioritis and have diplomatic immunity and run around <laughs> and do whatever the hell they want. Like There has to be a consequence for that, and, and that applies to both parties. Everyone wants to keep their home and family safe. Whether it's from a break-in, a fire, flooding, or a medical emergency, Simply Safe Home Security delivers award-winning 24/7 protection. With Simply Safe, you don't just get an arsenal of cameras and sensors, you get the best professional monitors in the business. They've got your back day and night, ready to send police, fire, or EMTs when you need them the most straight to your door. As is obvious to repeat listeners, I've been away uh, from New York for many months now, uh, and I sleep well knowing that my stuff is protected back home from Simply Safe. And it's just so easy to use. Uh, you could set it up yourself in about 30 minutes. It's super easy. Plus, with Simply Safe, there's no long term contract, no hidden fees or installation costs. And right now, our listeners get a free home security camera when you purchase a Simply Safe system at simplysafe.com slash majority 54 you get a 60-day risk-free trial so there's nothing to lose so visit simplisafe.com slash majority 54 for your free security camera today that's simplysafe.com slash majority 54 today's episode of majority 54 is brought to you by BetterHelp. you don't really need a good reason to you know access better help or to want to get counseling i mean look depending on what part of the country you live in, if it's just that the sky is gray and there's snow on the ground, I mean, it doesn't really matter. If something's off, something's off. So something's interfering with your happiness or you achieving your goals. BetterHelp assesses your needs and matches you with a licensed professional therapist. It's super convenient. You can start communicating within 48 hours in a safe, private online environment. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It's just real counseling. You can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, and if something comes up, you can send messages to your counselor at any time and get timely, thoughtful responses. BetterHelp is more affordable than traditional counseling, and financial aid is available too. BetterHelp is available worldwide so that you're not limited by the experts in your area. Anything you may want to talk about, they have it covered. Everything is confidential. It's convenient, professional, and affordable. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com slash M54. 
Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash M54. We have a busy misinformation corner uh, this week because we have a crescendo of sorts of some of the things that we've been talking about on this podcast, the QAnon stuff, uh, the difference between the extreme elements of the different parties. It's all coming to a head this week. And to frame this, uh, we have a listener voicemail. Hey, Robbie and Jason. Love your show. It's been really helpful over the last couple of months. One thing I was, if you guys could talk about and kind of explain to all of us, because I'm having a hard time understanding it, is how elected officials such as, I think it is Marjorie Taylor Greene, is spouting off different conspiracy theories about um, Sandy Hook was a hoax, uh, Parkland was a like was a hoax as well. Um, but just would love to kind of talk about the accountability factor for some of that stuff. And it's kind of mind blowing to sit back and be like, why is this person still here? How has she not been removed? Why did she get appointed um, special projects onto a committee, especially towards education? Um, I know we just went through four years of Trump and nobody held him accountable, but like what is stopping the thing now? Why are some of these Republicans able to spout out conspiracy theories and harass certain individuals that are supporting different causes? Thanks so much for the show. Really appreciate it. Listen every week. Have a great week. Bye. So just to tee this up, there is a vote that's going to be happening this afternoon, and we record this on Wednesday, uh, in the House that is going to, there's going to be a vote on their leadership, uh, which will deal with the question of Liz Cheney and members of the GOP caucus. I think there are a hundred plus now who want to exact consequences on her and remove her from leadership for supporting impeachment. And potentially this could be the form for a vote or something, uh, some form of consequences or censure or removal of committee assignments for Marjorie Taylor Greene. So listeners, you will probably know the outcome of this by the time this episode airs. The background here is that there's a, I wouldn't call it a civil war on this, but there are disagreements within the Republican Party about what to do. Uh, Mitch McConnell slammed Marjorie Taylor Greene. He said that she has loony lies and conspiracy theories and called her a cancer on the Republican Party in the country. And he also voiced support for Cheney. And as the listener mentioned, these are, there's just some crazy theories that Marjorie Taylor Greene has. You know, she's a QAnon supporter. She said 9-11 was an inside job. She said she's, you know, education committee member who says that Parkland was a false flag operation. And and the strangest one of these is she says that, I think it was the 2018 California wildfires were created by, among others, Rothschild Incorporated, who used laser beams to start the wildfires for profit and to clear the way for high-speed rail. That is a member of the GOP caucus at the moment. All of you listeners who think I've been too obsessed with QAnon, shame on you. Uh, it is now fully- <laughs> Yeah, you, you are vindicated, Robbie. It is, it is fully, uh, and maybe some of our producers, maybe who giggle every time I, I mention uh, QAnon or did months ago, the Democratic Party has now released an ad that's QAnon focused. QAnon, a conspiracy theory born online, took over the Republican Party, sent followers to Congress, and with Donald Trump, incited a mob that attacked the Capitol and murdered a cop. They seem to think that this is like the anchor on the Lusitania that's going to bring down certain members of the GOP, or at least be the opening salvo of 
uh, an offensive against the GOP. And I think that there's some merit to this. Uh, one of Trump's pollsters yesterday, uh, or or a report from one of Trump's pollsters, was leaked yesterday. And it was this huge report which basically said, why did Trump lose? And there were a lot of reasons why he lost. But the loony conspiracy stuff, the character stuff really dominated and and led to a huge erosion of his support among college-educated whites in particular. And I think that Democrats are, are right to press this point of just the crazy stuff that's coming out of the other side. Yeah, look, if you were fooled by the Loose Change documentary on YouTube uh, about, you know, 9-11 a few years ago, like, then, you know, you shouldn't be on the education committee. Uh, here's what I think is happening, like, because I understand why our caller is confused, right? It's like, it seems like there shouldn't be a consequence to them creating a consequence here. And they could remove her from committees. They could be like, look, you can stay in Congress, but you, you don't get any committee assignments and we're going to basically maroon you. That's what they did with Steve King, uh, who was from Iowa and who eventually then lost his primary. And Steve King was a white, and I'm sure still is, a white supremacist. Here's the difference. Steve King didn't have a following. Steve King wasn't a guy who, like, around the country, there were people who were like, I tell you who making some sense is that Steve King. Like, that wasn't happening. You know, he was just a crazy jerk from Iowa. And so there wasn't a real consequence for them doing that. They are worried because Marjorie Taylor Greene is part of something that is growing, QAnon and all this conspiracy theory stuff. And she seems to have a bit of a following, which is exactly why this has to get done, right? Be why she has to be removed from the committees. Because when McConnell says she's a cancer on the party, he is using exactly the right analogy. She is a very dangerous element of the party that is threatening to spread really quickly. And the more it spreads, the more dangerous it'll be to the party and to the country, which means you have to lance it, you have to remove it, and you got to do it now. And the fact that they may not have the courage to do that is very scary. Like, I recognize that if you expel her from Congress, that she will be she will be replaced by a Republican. I'm perfectly fine with understanding that. I just think it's reasonable to say that it should be a Republican who doesn't advocate assassinating their coworkers. Like, you wouldn't be cool with somebody working with you who's like, all the rest of these people need to be shot, and I'm calling in some folks to do it. Like, you wouldn't get to keep working there. And so if the if the case here to be made is, look, there is a QAnon person now in the Congress, and they won't stand up to this person, and they won't stand up to QAnon, which there were many QAnon people who stormed the Capitol. Well, it's not, therefore, the Republican Party is QAnon, therefore, the Republican Party is all these things. It is the Republican Party doesn't have any interest in standing up politically in order to protect the nation from this threat. That, I think, is a credible argument uh, worth making if they refuse to stand up. This reminds me of the conversation we had with my brother, where my brother had voiced, you know, he was like, you know, I don't have a problem with Biden necessarily. It's the extreme elements of the left and all of this. And look, like, I've got major misgivings with certain elements of the left. I, I deal with certain elements of the left all the time in my day job, and I agree uh, with them on certain things and then um, vehemently disagree on others. But I would say this, the left wing produced Joe Biden in that election, who people like my brother will describe as a decent guy who doesn't harbor those extreme views. Almost anybody we ask will say that. And then they'll say, well, I didn't vote for him because there's this extreme element of the left that one day could get power, right? Now, point to me and find me a member of the Democratic caucus that has views anywhere in the vicinity of this. And 
Look at Donald Trump himself, the person who my brother admitted to voting for, is a proponent of conspiracy theories himself. Donald Trump, uh, if we remember, was pushing a conspiracy theory that bin Laden's still alive and that that raid was faked. You know, this is our this is our men and women in uniform and perhaps one of the most heroic operations in U.S. history put their lives on the line. Trump was pushing that conspiracy theory among many, many others and then refused to apologize for it. And you can go down the long list of him, the, the standard bearer of the party. We got a voicemail from a listener um, that was making basically this point, and we'll have my brother back on and give an opportunity to respond. So I don't want to I don't want to call him out without giving him a form to respond, but it's it's frustrating. Why is there this disconnect between this hypothetical future of democratic left extremists and then a present that we live in right now where the Republican Party is overrun by extremists who push crazy conspiracy theories and we're we're talking about the hypotheticals on the, the democratic side. It just doesn't make sense. Well, and on top of that, I mean Trump is still the standard bearer who they're going to acquit. And he's currently corresponding with Marjorie Taylor Greene and supporting everything she's doing. So I want to point out for the listeners that we're talking about this in a segment called This Week in Misinformation. We're not about to roll through all the bananas stuff that this woman Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, is for. And because like that's a whole other podcast, like we could do that. But what instead the, the misinformation here is exactly what Ravi was just talking about, which is the idea that the extremism in American politics is on the left and that there isn't extremism on the right and that extremism should only be held against the major principles of one party and not of the other. And, and so to us, that's that's misinformation. You don't get to if you're if if you're in an argument with people, they don't get to say like they don't get to bring up some provocative thing that was said by somebody in the party and then act like that's the reason they voted against Joe Biden. When you're you can say like the person you voted for is literally calling this woman who thinks that fires are started by a Jewish space laser. Uh, when you know some people have pointed out that they didn't even know space lasers identified by a specific <laughs> religion or ethnicity. So. <laughs> Quarantine Corner, Jason, what's going on in your world this week? Uh, I had an outstanding week in my day job. For those who don't know, I'm the president of Veterans Community Project, and we serve uh, veterans uh, through outreach operations and community services, and also we build uh, villages of tiny houses for homeless veterans, uh, and we do it to stamp out um, veterans' homelessness, and uh, we're expanding nationally, and this week, uh, after a long and, and drawn-out process, we've been working on this for a year, uh, the Missouri Veterans Commission awarded $2.2 million to us to build a, uh, a village and, and a community center and an outreach center in, in St. Louis. Wow. Which means we're, yeah, I'm pumped. We're going to start housing homeless veterans in St. Louis uh, this fall, which means there are people on the street in St. Louis right now who serve their country, who this will be their last winter on the street. And in the meantime, we've also had a lot of progress in a bunch of other cities as we as we look to go all over the country. So, Dude, congratulations. Thanks. It's been, it's been a good week. That's huge. Yeah. Well, that's amazing. I mean, you should be really proud. That's incredible. Um, well, here's my rather trivial counter to that. I'm going to do something I don't do very often, which is recommend uh, a podcast. And this is a very popular podcast, but there's uh, Rewatchables is both of our favorite podcasts, I think, by, by The Ringer. They did both Terminator movies. The Terminator 2 movie was uh, the first R-rated movie I ever went to go see in the movie theaters. And... 
it had such a profound impact on my life, and I hadn't really thought about it until I listened to this podcast, which does a really good job of breaking down why both movies were groundbreaking, but particularly Terminator 2. I, as I was listening to this podcast, I was thinking, this was the first time I learned what nuclear weapons were, what like the runaway you know risks of technology were, just like so many things that shaped my worldview moving forward. I almost became a Luddite as a kid because of that. And I think I've never quite shaken it. And as I was listening to this podcast, I had all these memories of just like, my dad just grabbed me when I was seven years old, I think, and took me to Terminator 2. I had oh no God. idea what I was seeing. I can't recommend the podcast enough just to go down memory lane, but they do a good job of, of breaking down the movie. I listened to that episode and I almost stopped it halfway through to go back and rewatch Terminator 2. I mean, it's that movie is ridiculous. It's it is a masterpiece. My favorite part, by the way, of that pod was when they pointed out that like Linda Hamilton is she just sounds like a QAnon person. And she was just a crazy conspiracy theorist who happened to be right. And what if all these people are right? Anyway. I yeah, I, I was a little upset that they gave her the overacting award because if you this gets to our if majority you believe 54 that shit, point, you'd yeah, go crazy. It's a majority fifty four point. If if you actually believe it, you would expect people to act like lunatics. Um, and so if you actually believe that the world is going to end because of the decisions of people around you, you're probably going to be a bit excited. If 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 you're up for it, I am I am down to do an entire Wonder Media Network podcast that is just you and I second guessing the Rewatchables podcast yeah. and their awards the and, and just re reviewing it. The re-rewatchables. Uh, yes, yes, that's right. All right, for grabbing or um, something a little different. Uh, you know, we had some feedback in our listener survey that people would like uh, some more specific ideas on how to use their platform effectively. So in that vein, uh, I'm going to suggest something that's a little a little different, a little unconventional. I've really had a lot of respect and really been impressed with what uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has been doing in talking about the traumatic experience of being in the Capitol during the insurrection and feeling, and it seems to me, quite accurately and understandably like there were people looking for her that were there to kill her um and that being a traumatic experience for her and there's no shortage of people on social media um from the other side and some from our side you know basically telling her to suck it up and acting as though you know members of congress can't possibly have any problems and that they are so privileged that they shouldn't be able to speak about trauma and all of that stuff just sends people with trauma further and further back into their corner and makes them, you know, less likely to go and get help. So the Washington Post reached out to me this week and they asked me if I would write an op-ed about this. And so what I did is I, I, I wrote an op-ed that is basically a note to members of Congress on either side of the aisle and their staff, anybody who was in the Capitol during the insurrection, letting them know that they experienced a traumatic event and that if they feel affected by it in any way, they have to treat that injury. And so my grab and oar is, one of the reasons that people in those roles won't get treatment is because they feel that they don't have the psychological safety, the political space to do it. So, you know, we've asked people to call their members of Congress many times in the past. I'm going to, you know, tweet out a link to this uh, later this week. It'll probably be over the weekend when this is posted. Read it and then do me a favor, like call your member of Congress, whether they're a Democrat or Republican, and just let them know that if they've experienced or if their staff or anybody there has experienced any, uh, you know, feeling off since the violent insurrection on January 6th, that you would encourage them to go and get help for it and that you won't think there's anything wrong with that. 
As always, you can leave us a voicemail and we may uh, respond to it on the show. Our voicemail is 508-687-2589, 508-687-2589. You can get a grab and or t-shirt, which is a great conversation starter. So you can tell people about this show at wondermedianetwork.com slash bonfire. I'm at Jason Kander on Instagram and Twitter. You can give uh, Ravi a hard time, uh, which he loves, about how much fun he's having down in Costa Rica uh, by following him on Twitter and Instagram. He's at Ravi M. Gupta. Our show is at Majority54 on Twitter. Remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. Majority 54 is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by Grace Lynch and Edie Allard. Theme music is provided by Kemet Coleman. And special thanks to Diana Kander. So I literally got up uh, and sprinted with my backpack back to this uh, airstream that I'm in, grabbed my board and sprinted to the beach, uh, only to get to the beach where the wind was so bad. I, it was literally me and my buddy and one other person out in the water, and it was an incredibly unsafe surf. Um, and I caught one wave in an hour. And I came back and I was like, I just need to start making decisions about my mornings and sticking with them because it's, it's, really, it's really a problem. This is the most relatable quarantine corner <laughs> in history. I love this. I can't wait to see what happens on social media with this. Um, I fully expect very loving and encouraging comments on Instagram uh, from what I just shared. Uh, and so serve them up. Uh, I, I, I'm totally, uh, I'm excited to see what, what, what you got. Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.